Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the sequestration to my carbon. <laughs> Jordan Crook here. Happy to be sequestering. You're sequestering all my carbon. You know what that positions us as? That positions me as like the horrible pollutant. There's too much of me around just oozing out in the atmosphere. And you're like, don't worry, I will absorb all of his bad shit and take care of it so it doesn't harm the rest of you. Isn't carbon like a building block of life, though? I mean, like, it's, it's also not, like important. the worst thing. Yeah, yes. I mean, like you being carbon, let's not like gaslight the situation into something. It's not carbon's fine. It's just in too much okay. in our earth. It's not so great and requires a sequesterer. Now we're doing reputational <laughs> work for carbon. Carbon, it's okay. <laughs> courtesy of found <laughs> building block of life <laughs> uh this all matters and we'll get to that in a minute but first of all you know what this is this is a podcast from TechCrunch called found and we're all about the stories behind the startups and the people behind the startups the founders and we had a great founder on this week and we'll tell you about her in a minute but first of all I wanted to let you know about something special we have coming up so we have a live episode a live recording of found which includes us and <laughs> video. You get to see our wonderful yeah, smiling can, faces. You can watch it and interact. You can hop in the chat yeah. and ask questions. Probably won't have questions for us, more constructive compliments for us, but you might have questions for our guest. I'm actually really excited about the guest we have coming. Yes, it's Toyana Jai from City Block, and she is fantastic. I've had the privilege of speaking to her previously. We had her on stage at Disrupt last year. She was one of our guests. And it was maybe the most entertaining and interesting panel I've been on or been a part of personally. And definitely there were some fireworks. Fireworks. Toyin is cool because is a city block great. is like actually good. And I don't say that and say like every other startup isn't, but like there's a difference between like creating a startup that like could be good or might be good, but like also making all this money and like it loses its path. And then there's like these startups that actually think about the way things actually are in reality and fixes them, not like in some idealized version. And CityBlock is a great representation of that. It's a unicorn. And Toyin does not she doesn't pussyfoot around. No, no. Maybe I shouldn't say pussyfoot. Well, Toyin doesn't f yeah. around. Toyin like says what she means. She means what she says. And if you want to go back and watch that disrupt me, you'll also realize she doesn't suffer fools. So it should be a it should be a good time. <laughs> she doesn't at all. Yeah, I mean, with the two of us, she's gonna be exhausted yeah. because we're two fools. But we're really excited about that. And you can obviously ask your own questions to Toyin. So you can RSVP to that with the link in the show notes to join hop in and ask your questions live that's going down on march 3rd which is a thursday yes that's right so we look forward to seeing you there but it's interesting journey you're talking about mission-driven companies and our founder this week also the founder of a mission-driven company so this week we're talking to michelle Yu from supercritical and what supercritical is is a platform that assesses a company's carbon impact but then creates an actual plan for actually helping them reduce their emissions and then provides advice on high quality carbon removal 
mechanisms that the company can invest in in order to offset that. So basically, you hear a lot about carbon offsets. You'll hear from Michelle why not all carbon offsets are created equal and why supercritical. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that. So that was interesting. Yeah, no, it, it was, it, it's very illuminating. It's one of these things that's like, you know, people have been hearing about carbon offsets for a long time, but maybe it ended there for a long time, right? Now we're getting to a more sophisticated part of the discussion where it's like, well, what does it actually mean and what's behind it? And Michelle can provide a lot of context around that and around why she wanted to do this because her background was not in green tech or anything even close to this. So I think it's best if we let her explain her path as an entrepreneur and why she's doing that now. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. So we typically start these off by having you just give us and our listeners a bit of a 10,000 foot view on what uh, your company is. So super critical. I know that it involves carbon footprint. Super critical. It sounds like me. Yeah, maybe it's Jordan. <laughs> what is it actually, Michelle? <laughs> yeah, sure. So we um, were a software platform that helps businesses get to net zero. We measure your carbon emissions and we help you come up with a pathway to net zero with what actions you'll take to reduce your carbon emissions. And then we only sell high quality permanent carbon removal um, because that's the only type that counts towards net zero. We're on a bit of a kick here. We're having yeah. like an ESG theme. We tend to get in these themes. We had a health one, but now we recently had on Kentaro from Persephone. So I'm sure you're probably familiar with the company, but you know, like accounting essentially for carbon footprint. But one thing they don't do is that second part that you were talking about, which sort of paths to actually taking steps to adjusting your carbon footprint. So, I mean, that's super interesting. I would like to hear a bit more about how you like, because I, I think something that people are concerned about is greenwashing. Usually Jordan mm -hmm. is the one who brings up greenwashing on yeah, our podcast. Yeah, you pretty much took all I have to offer. So I stole I have to come up with something else to contribute to the conversation. <laughs> Give me a minute. But like, how do you go about ensuring for your customers that those things are, you know, authentic and actually do contribute to their bottom line from a ecological standpoint? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about carbon offsets, my kind of path to getting to supercritical was after I left my first business, I spent a few years kind of looking into climate change and you know, coming from a consumer internet company into climate, it was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to get into clean meat? I'm going to be into nuclear. And I got really attracted into the world of offsetting because I saw a lot of my peer companies were going out and buying offsets. Mm -hmm. And I also angel invested in a company called Ren, which is out of YC that does consumer subscription to offsetting. And that was my real entry point into like, what are these offsets? What are people buying? And the more I looked into it, the more I felt convinced that most of the conventional offsets in the market were just really crap. Like they weren't right. doing anything, even ones that are verified by third parties. I felt that, and, and it's not, you know, it's not like my feeling, but there's been a lot of research and studies around how those offsets aren't really doing what they say they're going to do. And a lot of the companies they talked to, I interviewed like dozens of companies before starting Supercritical who went carbon neutral and were buying these offsets. And all of them said, oh, well, when I came to buying the offsets, I felt really weird about it. It's like insanely cheap, like $5 a ton. So mm. I just doubled or tripled my spend just to cover my ass and make sure I was doing something. But if you buy 
twice as much of something that doesn't do anything. It's twice yeah. as much crap, really. Three X zero is still zero. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think the other thing I learned in that journey was the critical need to scale carbon removal. So carbon removal is this early technology that comes in various forms that literally removes carbon from the atmosphere and sequesters it somewhere. So the best example is probably direct air capture, which everyone's heard about. Mm -hmm. It's a fan that absorbs carbon dioxide and then buries it underground. And the kind of macro climate context around this is the planet needs to start removing, or we as a species need to start removing billions of tons a year in the next you know, few decades in order to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. All right. the scientists, the UN scientists who have modeled out how are we going to stay safe and stay below 1.5 degrees of warming, they've all assumed that these technologies scale to 10 billion tons annually. And meanwhile, they've only removed a few thousand tons to date. Ooh. So when you have this like scaling challenge, when I learned that, I was like, well, what, what are we doing about this? Because we're right. assuming it's going to happen and no one's really making it cheaper, trying to scale these technologies. And it just felt really obvious to me that that's the only way you should try to address your climate impact if you're going to if you're going to buy an offset is to like literally remove your own emissions and so that's why we've kind of narrowed in on that and we actually vet the offsets ourselves because the third party certifiers don't yet vet these early stage technologies i'm sure that's going to change and that mm -hmm. will that will happen in the next few years but like for example direct air capture is not yet certified by any third third party so we have a scientist on the team who does it piggyback on the great work of companies like microsoft and shopify and stripe who've published transparently their carbon removal kind of proposals that they received and it's a very early industry so we're all trying to figure it out together i think yeah, for sure. I think that we've described it previously on this podcast as still in the kind of wild west phase, yeah. right? So there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of potential pitfalls. And I think that businesses respect, and you can correct me on this, but like businesses are thinking ahead to when regulations catch up and when auditing processes are in place, and they want to be ship shaped for when that happens, as opposed to playing catch up by the time that happens. And they also realize that there's real upside, like. The other part is not, it's not like, oh, you just want to trick somebody. It's like, no, no, no. Like we really have to do this for real tangible reasons that are important to human survival upon which business relies, right? Like it, <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> gotta be someone to sell to, end, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think you're totally right about the regulation point. You know, more than half the world's GDP has made a net zero commitment in law. You know, the UK was one of the first countries to do that. And it's only a matter of time that they, you know, figure out, well, if the, the country's committed to it, how do we make every business, every every civilian get to net zero? Because we, we all have to do it if we're going to get to net zero. So that regulation is absolutely coming. But you mentioned in there your journey to this and your previous company. So, you know, our listeners may know, but the, I found it super interesting that you, you, you previously founded Songkick with one of your co-founders is also the co-founder for this venture, right? Co-founders from Songkick. He wasn't a co-founder at Songkick, but he was the CTO. So we oh, worked CTO. together okay. for many years. My yeah. mistake. Right. But yeah. So you did work together for a long time on a totally yeah. different area that yeah. really is, I, I mean, I'm sure there's crossover because <laughs> the, the music industry generates carbon impact just like everything else, but like not really, right? Yeah. I know you had, you went to VC for a little while, but what was your journey to this? And then also like, why did you go back and say like, look, we work together on this other venture, but I think we're a good fit to take this on together too, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, you know, I started Sonkic in 2007. We were one of the first British companies in YC. We raised from Index and Sequoia and exited to Warner Music. 
And I spent nine years there. And after leaving Songkick, I was really burned out and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I was just like completely lost. And I spent a year backpacking around the world. It was a real privilege, probably emitted a lot of carbon because we took a lot of flights. <laughs> but in that, in that kind of wilderness year, I had the opportunity to just be outdoors in nature, which I never was an outdoorsy person. I hiked, I camped, I climbed, I surfed, and I really loved being outside. And I, it was when I was reading Yvonne Schuinard, who's the Patagonia CEO's kind of memoir. It was, it was this really company values handbook. I always looked up to Patagonia as a business doing the right thing. And I read that like in the back of a camper van and it's all about climate change and how bad it is. And I remember mm -hmm. reading it being like, God, I, new climate change was happening, but I, you know, and I recycled, but I thought scientists had this figured out and I didn't realize how bad it was. And I got really scared. I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do about this? And coming from, you know, we had 20 million monthly users on our mobile apps. What is it that I'm going to do about climate change? I have no idea. And I really took that time at the Venture Fund, the local globe to learn about climate change and give myself the time and permission to figure out what am I going to do about it? And I didn't know for a long time. I talked to loads of people, looked at loads of companies, limiting methane emissions from cow burps all the way mm -hmm. to like, you know, decarbonizing the grid, loads of different companies. But it was really when the founder of Local Globe tasked me with getting them to net zero. He was like, we need to get to net zero. Our LPs are asking us, you care about this, you go figure it out. And I found that process of figuring out what to do incredibly frustrating. It was just there's so much information using all these acronyms, not talking to a normal human being. And I talked to consultants who were giving me quotes and timelines that just made no sense for a VC fund. Like all the net zero guidance out there is really pitched towards mature companies with supply chains and physical products, right. not tech companies or VCs. And so I just thought, well, if it's this hard for me to, to do this and I really care about this, then no one's going to act if we don't make it super simple. So that was really my catalyst for coming up with Supercritical and, and leaving to start that company. Um, but I wasn't sure I wanted to start another company. It took me, I had the idea for Supercritical a year before I started it, but I needed to work through a lot of issues. I mean, I think any second time founder hopefully would relate just around what happened to the first company. What did they make right. of it? How did it fail? And what are you going to do differently? And all the trauma really related to it. And I, I had to just work through it. And my, my co-founder at the time, he was really impatient because he'd never started a company like when are you getting ready you know I'm, I'm just like doing these consulting gigs and waiting for you and i really had to just kind of get her get off the pot you were like i have some <laughs> scar tissue i gotta work through yeah, first listen yeah a lot of scar tissue can yeah. we talk more about the scar tissue like what would you say was the biggest piece there that you kind of like sucked up the most of your energy and attention when you were thinking about like okay i'm gonna go do this again like what was the thing that kind of hung you the had most to be like i have to be okay you. with this part of it yeah yeah I don't think there was one thing, probably the main thing was, so we, at Songkick, we ended up suing Ticketmaster yeah. for antitrust violations because they are a monopoly and they were crushing our business. And this was they like- indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, you know, maybe if we were in court today, it would be a different conversation because the antitrust environment's a bit different. But, you know, we, we want a settlement from them for $100 million. And that's not an outcome you plan for when you start a company. You're not like, oh, I'm going to win a lawsuit. And this is what I'm going to gun for. You kind of want to grow and you have big ambitions. And so with that ending and the that exit, it was kind of like, what happened? Was that a success? Did I do something meaningful? Or was that just like a sad, bad market chosen and like a sad ending to something you worked really hard on. So 
unpicking that and what I made of it and kind of extracting myself from my, you know, my sake identity and who I am as a person took a lot of time. And I think that the other big thing that I had to work through is I had song kick or we, we did song kick when I didn't have any kids and I had a kid after I left song kick and being a mom and a founder was like, I didn't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could be the kind of mom I want to be and be the kind of founder I wanted to be. So I had to really think through my values and how I would prioritize. And it's still a struggle today for sure. Did you win the lawsuit? We won a settlement. So we didn't actually go to court. We had to right. settle or we settled out of court. You described it as the end. So what, how did that end things, right? Like you get a hundred million dollars and say we're done with Songkick. Like what? Yeah. So the product and the team were acquired by Warner Music. And I'm really happy that the product's still alive. I think whenever you do an acquisition, you assume that your product's going to end and it's still going. But Ticketmaster acquired our IP and the parent company as part of that settlement. So that was okay. Yeah. Right. Cause you had merged with crowd surge, right. And then before, yeah. yeah, Before the lawsuit. Yeah. But then like, there's the other side to that, right? Like that could, I could totally see how that would be a struggle. Right. Cause you're like, okay, I'm going to build this thing and the users are going to love it and it's going to deliver this value. And like, we're going to keep growing. And then like the lawsuit things happens. Right. I mean, I think a lot about, I got an email recently from the PR person for Aereo. Do you remember Aereo from 10 years ago? You mean Do you the, remember Daryl? Uh, <laughs> over the air TV? The over the air mini antenna, yeah. pre Hulu live. And they like stacked TV. antennas and they were like, each individual antenna is owned by a person. It was the way to so, get around. Because, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I remember that going all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruling against it and feeling like that was like a really bad choice by the court like just based on what I understood of the law and like spent a lot of time with that. I mean, I'm no expert on anything. So what do I know? But like almost any time, whether you win or lose, like I just feel like going through the court system in general is this like really heartbreaking thing. Like you just see everything that's unfair, like just right in your face all the time. Right. And it must grind you down. Like it it works in years and decades. Right. Whereas as a founder, you're like, I don't get an answer for a year. Like yeah, we're, for a year. <laughs> we're on a weekly timeline at yeah. best. Right. Like, yeah. so it's just like a really, I could understand how brutal. like emotionally mm-hmm. that could be just a really painful experience, no matter the outcome, just the fact that it exists and the, the loopholes and the lawyers and the paperwork and all that stuff. But like, at the same time, you can look at that and say like, I'm going to go start a new company and I've at least done this thing. Like what could be like a the worst thing case founder ever outcome. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like I've done it at least. Right. Like I know what it entails. I know what it looks and feels like. You obviously don't plan for it or want it. But like yeah. going in as a serial founder being like, okay, worst case scenario, I at least did that once. I could do it again. I don't want to, yeah, but I could. That's, that's a healthier perspective on it. I think my <laughs> view was, oh, I led the company to that outcome. I stuck. Like, what's no. wrong with me? I don't want to do that again. Like, do I have the right to start another one when I had that that failure? I saw it as a failure at the time. Uh, that's the first time anyone's it. called my perspective healthy. So thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But did you have, so you had to do that work yourself. Did you, did that come up in conversations when you were out fundraising for super critical or was it more just like something that you realized like, oh, this is a reflection on myself that I have to deal with. And it's not really a perception. At other large. people don't care no, as much. No, other people, I mean, VCs love second time founders. Exactly, and right. I saw that from the inside when I was at the fund, it was work that I had to do myself. Like I knew I needed to 
sort my own stuff out before I started another company. So I had a coach and lots of crying and lots of talking to get there. Oh, yeah. but that, I mean, that brings up, cause I was also going to ask, like, how has your leadership changed from one company to the other, right? Do you feel like you're a very different leader now than you were then? And do you ever look back and go like, oh God, on some of the decisions you made as a leader before, or how, how has that been for you? I, I mean, I love that question, actually. I, I mean, the difference right now is I'm the CEO of Supercritical. I mm-hmm. wasn't the CEO at Songkick, I was the CPO. So that role now is very different. And I, you know, even though I, the CEO was my co-founder, I being the CEO is different and I feel that responsibility a lot more. I think that being a second time founder, I'm a lot more confident about certain things and my decisions on certain things are a lot quicker. So for example, when we were fundraising, I was very clear that I wanted half of my cap table to be women. And I think when I started Songkick, I was 25. I just like, I didn't really know. I didn't encounter sexism. I didn't think about it. This was like 2007 pre Me Too and like the tech communities reckoning with their kind of sexist culture. So I, you know, I slept, walked into being a female founder and I didn't really think about it. And then I experienced a lot of things and had a lot of strong opinions and got a thicker skin. And so with super critical, I was a lot more focused on, I want this to be a great place to work for any kind of person. I want, you know, the diversity and inclusion conversations a lot more mature now. And so I could start the company with those intentions. And that was very different as well. Yeah. Can we circle back for a second to the second piece that you had to work through? I feel like I wouldn't normally ask this of someone, but you brought it up. So I do want to kind of get your take on being a mom and a founder and like what, how you thought through that and like what boundaries you drew or like how you planned for it and how it's adjusted over time as, you know, I'm sure your kid grows up and the startup grows up, like how those things are changing and how you think about it. Yeah, I don't think people talk about it enough. Well, probably because most founders aren't parents because they're so young. Well, and it's like also not a kosher thing to ask about, really. I don't think like we're all over the like, what's it like to be a female founder? What's it like to be a mom and a founder, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But like, it is a real thing. So it's like hard to find the balance of how to talk about it without being like, that's who you are. Yeah. That's all right. you are. You and know? we reckon yeah. with that like internally in the newsroom, right? Like transparently, we've yeah. had to have these conversations about like, look, this is definitely not something that you should. But then but I think the next level and... You know, I guess even Alexis Ohanian has been pretty vocal about this. It's more like, well, you should ask more about the balance for everyone. Right. Yeah, if we're, we should parents, ask a father. Yeah. You should ask parents what it's like to be a parent. And and on that point, I mean, I'm really lucky that my husband is an equal caregiver. You know, if we took the same amount of parental leave. He's like completely half the household, is half the childcare, half the, half the work. And, and that is a struggle, right? Because I think in most families, there's like a default primary caregiver and default breadwinner. And that's not the case for us. So anytime my son is sick, it's like we have to juggle our schedules and be like, oh, we're taking the day off now. And what are we going to do? And it's always a scramble. But for me, I think with being a parent and starting a company, one of the reflections I had, like after I left Songkick, before I had my son, I had a lot of reflections around what would I do differently, both in like managing people and my work-life balance and my personal life. And I always thought back to the way I would default prioritize Songkick over my personal life, no matter what, I would meet that person at the pub for a meeting at 9 p.m. if that's the only time he or she could meet to close the deal or whatever, that that kind of stuff. And the canonical example in my head was my mom and my sister came over to the UK for a week in like year two of Songkick and they wanted to go on a trip to Ireland. And I said, I couldn't go because I was too busy. And so they went on this two week trip to Ireland 
and I didn't go. And when I think back to that time, I'm like, I didn't do anything important that week. I should have just gone on the holiday. They live in America. I don't see them that much. Why did I make that prioritization? And so I really wanted to be more thoughtful around what was important to me and how do I prioritize my personal life and my personal relationships? Cause they are important. And with super critical now, I think because my co-founder is also a parent to a young child, I, you know, I clock off at five and I'm very strict about that. I don't do anything after that. I will occasionally log on in the evenings and work, but I don't expect anyone to. And we've made it really clear to the entire team, your family and your personal relationships matter, like prioritize yourself. This is, you know, an important part of your life, but it's not the only part of your life. And we don't expect you to kill yourself by working here. So that's been, you know, a very clear value from day one. In reality, juggling that is a lot harder. You know, like when I need to go away on a trip now for three days, that that comes at a cost to my family. And it, those decisions are a lot harder. So it's not easy. And I haven't, I don't have it figured out, but it's an ongoing work in progress. Right. But at least you're, it's like a consideration now, whereas before it was absolutely not right. You were just like, oh, no, this is the yeah. thing that wins by default yeah. every single time. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that probably helps with other things, too. Right. Like if you have these two kind of like family and startup and these are my two priorities and they have to balance at any given time, then like when something else comes in, it like gives a lot more perspective as well. Like a friend wants to do X, Y, Z or whatever, like the other things that have to fit into the puzzle it's easier because you have two things that are already trying to balance out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in a weird way, I also think my becoming a mom has really helped with my anxiety and security imposter syndrome. I just don't have time to indulge <laughs> my own brain with my stupid crap that's going on in there. I just like need to shut it off and get stuff done. So I think I've become a lot more, I guess, confident by being a mom. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause on busy days, I'm like, Oh, I'm way less anxious. And then most days <laughs> I have plenty of time though to be like, wow, I'm terrible at this, which I think hourly, I don't know. And Jordan gets a lot of it from me, but I'm like, what am I doing? I'm really bad at this. Right. And she's like, no, not really. <laughs> I think you're okay. <laughs> Pretty good at things. So I've recently become like a pseudo co-parent. We have a 14 year old in the house. My partner has a teenager, which is like a weird jump to start into any sort of parenthood. But I do feel like there's this weird dichotomy between being less anxious about a lot of things, like you said, because like you're just too busy and you have like other kind of priorities. There's no time to like sit and worry about X, Y, Z. And then also being like kind of more anxious about yeah. things too, mm -hmm. right? Like, cause yeah. you like zoom out a little bit, like it gives you a different level of perspective. So it's like easier to kind of like, Oh, I, I'm worried about the one thing that I said, because it has a ripple effect. Right. As opposed to it's a, it's a weird thing. I also feel like probably slightly more decisive just based on having less time to, yeah like you said, sit and mull yeah. over and over mm -hmm. and over again. But it is a weird thing. Like another thing that came to mind while you're talking about that is, especially when we were talking about song kicking kind of outcomes there, and then wanting to build a company that has a certain effect and has a certain outcome and has a certain sort of set of results. And like, I think it's much more sustainable, right? Like the way that you're going about your own personal leadership and everything is much more sustainable now. And that's the thing that, especially when we're 
younger in our careers, like we don't realize that that pace or that intensity is not sustainable. So like for long-term impact, it's a much better, healthier approach, right? But I it's- hope so. Ask well, me in nine No, I think it is. <laughs> I think we can all, I think we should all agree and state it as fact. It makes me sad too, because it's one of those things. It's just like, I'm sure you feel this a lot, Michelle, with your kid. And I feel this a lot too, where you can't tell someone younger, like I can't sit and talk to a 23-year-old founder and be like, your pace and the way that you're thinking Mm -hmm. about things and your like kind of commitment to this above all else, even yourself is going to, you're going to pay the price for it eventually. Right. In one way or another, it's like a mistake people have to make on their own. You have to live through it to kind of learn that lesson. Totally. You inevitably will, you know, you like get better at it as you age and start like perspective taking. So. Since you're a found listener, I'm going to bet you're also pretty interested in startups and technology. Great news. We're going to give you an offer for 25% off a subscription to TechCrunch Plus. TC Plus is our premium product. And what you get there are deep dive interviews with some of the best startup founders and investors in the industry. You get surveys of different investors in different areas of expertise and geographies. You get market maps of opportunities in new and emerging industries. And you get deep dive looks at some of the hottest startups out there. You can subscribe to TechCrunch Plus at TechCrunchPlus.com. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, just follow the links for TechCrunch Plus and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. Once you're there, just enter the code, which is found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 25% off a one-year TechCrunch Plus subscription. I do. I want to get back actually to the product a bit just because like something that you said early on in talking about it is something that I think a lot of people still don't realize around this market. Like if you're purchasing carbon offsets, which a lot of companies were talking about early on, right? Like that just might mean you're basically famously Tesla is like, you know, sells a lot of carbon offsets and that makes it a big part of their business. Right. And it's like, if you're buying that, you're offsetting your impact in like the most indirect way possible. Right. It's sort of like, if you were like, oh, like I'll put some weights over here on this, on the end of this seesaw. And you're like, but I'm not even on the other end of that seesaw. Like that's yeah, somebody well, else's seesaw. So conventional offsets are essentially paying other people to stop emitting, right? And right. that's paying other people to to stop doing something, do nothing essentially. And if we think about, so that's like, you know, the traditional renewable energy project offset or clean cook stove offset. And in the world of a net zero, you know, goal, if you emit a ton and you pay someone to stop emitting, your ton is still out there warming the planet. It's still there. And so you need to actually remove it to get to net zero. And I think there there can be conventional emissions avoidance offsets that have impact, but there's been study after study that has shown that they aren't doing anything. So the best example is probably all the forestry protection credits that they've sold that are now kind of going up in flames in California. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing about those offsets that we've sold now that don't exist anymore because right. the trees are dying? So you can't, with, with nature-based solutions like trees, you can't really guarantee that that tree will stay alive for the thousands of years that your carbon dioxide will stay alive. Yeah, And you're talking about just natural phenomenon, but yeah. that, sometimes they're even sold and it's like, there's no guarantee that won't that won't be logged in two years or whatever, right? Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or the logging ends up leaking to somewhere else and it happens somewhere else. And I think that's because conventional offsets are really underpinned by this concept of what they call additionality, where you have to prove that your that, that offset would not have happened without you spending that money. But that means that you have to predict this hypothetical 
counterfactual scenario of if I didn't spend this money, would this renewable project have gone up anyway? Hmm. Would this clean cook stove transition have happened? And in the case of renewables now, you know, it's cheaper than coal. So how can you say that your money towards this renewable is wouldn't have happened otherwise? That right. renewable probably would have happened already. So this it get you get into this weird logical conundrum of like, what's this future that you're predicting where this, you know, and it makes you predict a future that probably isn't realistic or real just so you can sell the offset. Yeah, you have to be like, given no other company will, would make this contribution instead. And given, and there's so many givens that it's like, those givens don't make any sense, right? <laughs> yeah, and the European Commission did a study of offsets a few years ago, and they found that 85% of them were not additional and didn't have the climate impact that they, they said that would. And I just like, when you get into that net of like, how do you prove these things? Whereas carbon removal, you're buying a ton of carbon being removed. There's no other thing that's happening there. There's no other way that money would be spent. So it's pretty straightforward and clear what you're buying and what you're getting. How much do you get involved in sort of like novel methods for that or in innovative approaches that are up and coming? So our primary customer is tech companies and, you know, they get really excited by being an early adopter to these technologies because they get scaling cost curves, like all that sort of stuff. And so we work kind of constantly sourcing new removal methods. They get engaged in the story of what they are and how they work, you know, and they, it's just amazing because there's so many ways of removing carbon. And we're so early in the journey that we need all of them to start getting to scale. Well, and given your history, it's, it would seem to me like you would end up being like almost a scout for investors, especially green tech investors or whatever, where they would come. Maybe they're like, oh, my LPs are asking for this and I would I want to find a way to like green some of our businesses. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. I also want to invest in this business. Does that happen or has that happened or is it something you're thinking about? I don't know. I don't think that's happened as, in terms of being a scout, but I, hmm. I do think that there's a huge advantage for being early in the carbon removal market just because as the world realizes, okay, we can't get to net zero without carbon removal, it will be incredibly supply constrained. So the yes. fact that we have supply now at this price means that we'll have an advantage, I think, in the, in the marketplace. And I've heard an argument to, you know, which I, it's not my position, but I've heard an argument that like, well, carbon removal is all well and good, but like the only real way to do it is to not put the carbon into the system to begin with. But like, you know, to me, it's obvious both are needed, but like, what is kind of your position on that, I guess? Yeah, both are absolutely needed. I think that we need to do both. We've left it too late now. We both need to stop emitting and reduce those emissions and also clean it up, clean it up. I read this like, amazing tweet storm about it. And they're like, it's like we've been in the pool for the last 500 years. We need to both stop in the pool and clean up the turds in the pool. Yeah, like, you don't, you don't just do go either like, or. Pool's yeah. fine now. We're yeah, just going to deal with it. We're going to clean it up while people walk by and squat. Yeah. Yeah. So I think then my question would be if you're like going into novel methods and like, so how do you work around like vetting them? I guess what's your hiring mix? Like, do you have people internally? Do you work with organizations outside? Like, how do you make sure that, especially for ones that are new and upcoming, like, oh, this really is worth our clients investing in or sourcing from? We do vet internally, but we piggyback on a lot of great work that is already out there. So, you know, Stripe and Microsoft all publish their carbon removal proposals from all the suppliers that they work with. And so that that's very transparent. It's great to the limited extent that third parties are verifying some of the methods like biochar, for example, is verified by third party. We will work with those third party verification systems, but in the absence of a trusted source for this, we, we have to vet it ourselves. You know, we have a climate scientist who has decades of experience and she'll ask the life cycle analysis questions and look through the documentation. 
Oh, great. Yeah. Cause like, I was going to ask about hiring mix too. Like, is it, has it been for, it's obviously very different than your last company, but how has it yeah. been like sourcing and finding talent and retaining talent? Has it been a challenge or is there a lot out there and people are just like, I wish I could help somebody, but nobody's hiring or which way is it? Yeah. Going? Our, our team right now is about a third product in tech, a third kind of commercial go to market and a third, like the footprinting climate science side of things. And I think that every founder finds it challenging to hire right now. It's an right. incredibly competitive market. But I think that working for an impact-focused company has, has a lot of attraction. We get a lot of great candidates who want to work in climate. They really care about it personally, and they want to find a way to contribute. And so we get a lot of candidates that way. And I think the, the more interesting thing I've seen is that across our customer base, and again, we work with tech companies, the most common reason why tech companies start working with us is for their employer brand. Mm, so they right. hear a lot from their team, like, what are we doing about this? Or talent as they're interviewing, asking, what is your sustainability policy? And so the most common role we work with is a chief people officer because they want to have a strong sustainability policy to attract the right talent. And one of my angels is Gustav, who runs the climate kind of stuff at YC. And he was like, I think climate's the next DNI. If like five years ago, people were right. clueless about DNI and didn't really know what to do and had and to start figuring have. it out. Now it's right. a must have. I think climate's the next, yeah, DNI must have. I agree, especially. So, Jordan, it's your favorite part of the podcast Canada or Shopify? Uh, Shopify. <laughs> Because <laughs> you mentioned Shopify at the top of the call, but like I worked there, right? And I have firsthand experience <laughs> with their employer brand team and their employer yeah. brand efforts. And that is a very values driven organization, right? So the way they hire is heavily concentrated in like, oh, do you align with our values? And, and they make a big deal about advertising them. They have like I don't know if they still do this. I have issues with it as well. But the, like they do a lifestyle interview. A lot of other companies do this too. Like the first interview is like, oh, it's just a chat with somebody. And then it's like, do you align with us and like how we kind of, and it's kind of like a vibes interview. And I'm, mm. uh, you know, it's problematic for a number of reasons, but that's neither here nor there. But like overall, I, I do think they lean very heavily into the impact part and they are early movers on that in the same way, like exactly like you're talking about, right? Because DNI does play a big role there as well. And they do a lot with employee resource groups and like a lot of stuff internally to make sure that that's well represented. Uh, but mm. like they're ramping up on that side too, on the impact side, right? And they're really, especially when they are positioning themselves as like an Amazon competitor, it's very, very right. important, right? Yeah. And I think that's where startups really stand to benefit from this. It's like, if you want something that your legacy competitors can't really catch up to on, like this is the thing, right? It's very easy to make early moves now and make yourself very attractive from that perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the earlier you start, the easier it is. Yeah. And we, you know, we do loads of team engagement, things like get them to vote on the carbon removal portfolio they buy or lunch and learns. And it, they always get really great feedback from their team around it. And I think the other, the other reason why we focused on tech is that tech as a sector, including hardware um, and all the way up to streaming has more emissions than aviation globally. So right. we have a huge responsibility to act and more people who work in tech understand that the more they're going to demand that their employers are doing something about it. Yeah. And it, and it also comes into play on the LP side, like you mentioned, right? So it's it's pressure from both yeah. sides, from yeah. the hiring side yeah. and the funding side. Right? Yeah. I did want to ask you, we're running short on time, but I, I have to get into, I noticed in your, your LinkedIn CV. You're going to talk about CV, Canada? No, I wanted to ask about, because <laughs> Michelle got her start in publishing and then in media. And fled. In our terrible industry. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she managed to get away from it. How'd you do this? <laughs> but I do want to know, like, how you got your start on that. What was your what was your path from that out? And do you ever still think about media and give it any kind of <laughs> do thought? Do you still of, like, think about us? Publishing. <laughs> do you miss us? us? <laughs> yeah, I miss writing a lot. Yeah. I think my, my happiest times are when I can... I mean, I never get to do this anymore, but sit down for two hours and just write down what I think. I, I really do miss that. We are that. hiring um, a climate reporter, so <laughs> we have some open. feel free yeah, to yeah. jump yeah. back I mean, in. I, I feel like my path into tech was really accidental. Like it didn't, I'm never, I've never been one of those people with a 10 year career plan and here the stuff I'm going to take. So after I left, I went and did my master's in literature thinking I was going to be an academic because I love reading, but I soon realized this is, I'm, I'm a terrible academic. I'm not good at working by myself. I think like, that's probably to your credit. Yeah, <laughs> and after that, I went to China to study Chinese. It was really more like gap year. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I'd always wanted to live in China. And I met my co-founder there. We were both studying Mandarin in Beijing and we became friends. We actually started dating and he quit his job first to start Songkick because he'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. He was like, you know, from day one, wanted to do that. And I started helping him on evenings and weekends. And the more I got involved, I was like, oh, this is really fun, like in designing the product, things like that. And so I eventually left my job in magazine publishing to join full time. But, you know, I grew up in the Valley. My mom worked at Apple. I, I've been around tech my whole life. I think I've always seen tech as a tool and been more interested in how it affects our culture and how we you know, live and communicate and are humans together. So that's been my angle. But I've always felt like an outsider because I'm not a developer. I'm not technical. Like I can just write stuff and tell people what to do. Yeah. But I mean, useful skills and ones that are sorely missing from a lot of the folks in the other camp, because I like I have a similar feelings about it. I still don't, I'm not a techie person. Jordan, I don't know your own feelings, probably similar vibes. Like, you know, it's, it's good to have those people in positions of influence in an industry whereby, you know, it's useful to have, I don't want to, I don't want, I'm not going to use the term. I'm not going to use the term that Andreessen <laughs> has been throwing around, but you all know what I'm talking about. I think the, oh, I want you to say it. <laughs> it's useful to have a few word cells mixed in with the shape rotators. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I, I stooped to that. But. You did it. I'm going to tweet it later. <laughs> so you know, no plans to start your own sort of like zine or anything. You're not going to start a poetry monthly. I wish uh, I monthly. had the time. Yeah. <laughs> if you come work I for wish. TechCrunch, we can give you the time for side yeah. hustles. <laughs> But thanks so much for joining us. It was great, great talking to you. And I think Supercritical is, as the name, is that where you got it? Like it is Supercritical right now. To... It's actually, well, that's where my wordsmithing comes in because it's oh, actually yeah. a double, yeah, double meaning. So it is Supercritical, obviously, but that's actually the physical state that the CO2 has to be compressed into in order to be injected underground. It's called a supercritical oh. fluid. It's kind of between liquid Yeah, when and I gas. Googled supercritical, it was like, here's some science. And I was like, I don't, yeah. this is the one I... <laughs> you were like, X, see you later, Tab. <laughs> well, thank you, let's try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's great. Meeting. Yeah, and be sure to keep us up to date and hopefully we'll we'll talk to you again soon sometime in yeah, the future. Yeah, and thanks for being so human. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks for always nice. All right, so that was our conversation with Michelle Yu. Jordan, 
What did you think about our chat with Michelle and her startup Supercritical? I really liked hearing about her journey between Songkick and Supercritical and kind of sharing how that ending for Songkick and like going through a lawsuit, it's like, she said, that's never what you dream of as a founder for that to be the way things go. Like, oh, I'm going to sue someone. Clearly she's not like, uh, I mean, there's a whole businesses in the U.S. that are basically, that's their whole goal and mission and dream. That's but not her. It's not what she said. No, to do. not even close. <laughs> and she was like really candid about the kind of like emotional toll it took. And I think this is true. Founders, they get so attached. They become like their identity is wrapped up in the product that they create and the company that they create. And I think it can be really hard when those things don't go as planned to kind of bounce back from that. And I thought it was cool her talking through kind of her journey and her thought process of kind of like rebuilding or re-realizing her identity as a founder and entrepreneur and then also how she like kind of got interested in climate and environmentalism and kind of that whole story was really interesting to me i liked it yeah she was very one of the more candid founders we've had on when talking about how like to her the song kick thing didn't seem like it felt like a success yeah right which is funny because we define it in very different ways i think depending on who you are but like it was clear that it was the source buffer. She even talked about, yeah, she talked about scar tissue and having to deal with that, right? And work through that. And that's for an outcome like that, like it can be easy to kind of forget that there's a lot of human pain behind the scenes and something like that, right? And I think we see a lot of exits that are like, you know, decent exits, but fire sale prices, but you're like, oh, well, the founder probably made it all right. And then we make kind of assumptions about it, but the actual impact of that on a person and like what it means for the, their life is much more difficult to see. So I thought that was great that Michelle was willing to talk about that. Yeah, it's easy to like boil things down to the numbers, right? Like, you know, selling for a few million, even if you had a much higher valuation, it's still like everybody's fine. But there is a lot that there's an emotional side to it. There's a human side to it. And I, I thought it was cool that she went into that. And she talked a lot too about like what she's changed this time around as an entrepreneur and like how she sets right. really clear boundaries between her personal and, and her professional life and like how she takes perspective in terms of what's important on a day-to-day basis. And I thought that was all really cool too. Yeah. And she talked about like a pretty strict, I'm off at five, right? Like I'm no longer available. I think she said she will sometimes do work after that, right? Like that's not unusual, but it's not like she's online and working and like. Yeah. Done by five is like the standard that she set, not only for herself, but for the rest of the company as well. Right. Yeah, that was great. And I, and we also talked about what, how it was different for her to now be a mother and like what the challenges are there, right? And we sort of showed a little bit of our own kind of like, not biases, but like thinking around that and sensitivities around that because you were like, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't normally bring this up. It's not something you normally want to broach, especially because it's like seen as, oh, of course, you're going to ask about how do you balance all this stuff uh, of women specifically when they're mothers, right? And so I think, and specifically like the Marissa Mayer days and like the way that Marissa Mayer approached being a mother. And I think it kind of was like, you wouldn't ask this of a man, so don't ask this of a woman, right? But what we came around to 
in this conversation was like, and I think she, Michelle specifically said, you know, you should, you should ask what it's like, but you should ask everyone. Yeah. Everyone. All parents. Right. right? Yeah. And I think that was a good point. And I also like, I do think those conversations are valuable, right? Like as long as they're equitable as well. And yeah, there was a lot to, to glean from that. I think. I think so too, because if you, even if you like gameplay a situation where you're like, Oh, well you ask and the guys are like, well, it doesn't, that has nothing to do with this. Then you're like, well, why does it right? Like that's that's a, an interesting part of the conversation. If this doesn't, if you keep these identities so separate and they they never conflict with one another, right? Like that is also worth asking about and investigating. So, yeah. look at us, wow. solving crisis really after advanced crisis. The state of the practice, really the state did. of the art of journalism. Innovators. Oh no, it's Michelle Michelle <laughs> prompted us too. So it's. To her credit, not ours. Once again. <laughs> the usual. But we do want you to come see our live show. So definitely do that on Thursday. Come hang out with us and yes. toy in from City Block. It's going to be a hoot. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited and produced by Maggie Stamets. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us at 510-936-1618 and leave us a voicemail. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.